Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. A pleasure to be here today with Dara Horn, a scholar and an author, most recently known for her um, best-selling book of People Love Dead Jews which you'll be able to access a recording of later as well. And today we're going to talk about um, her book written about 15 years ago, All Other Nights, which is a novel, fascinating novel, about Jewish spies on both sides of the Civil War. So to first tell me, like, why did you write that? That's such an interesting topic. So I decided to pursue this topic. This sounds so bonkers now, um, but... 15 years ago because of how polarized the country was then, which is absurd when you think about it. It's, it hasn't gotten better, has it? Um, and, you know, sort of thinking about how many of the conflicts in the, in our country really kind of go back to the Civil War. When you think about red states and blue states, it kind of follows the Mason-Dixon line. Um, and thinking about also, and I was looking at sort of how, you know, was true, you know, it's like, Jews are like other Americans, maybe only more so. Um, and sort of the polarization in the Jewish community, again, laughable that this was something I was thinking about 15 years ago. Um, but then I sort of, you know, looking into the divisions in the Jewish community in the Civil War, and I sort of came out with this really interesting picture. Um, so I don't know if you want me to go into detail yeah, about right, that now. Yeah. Sure. So, um, you know, it's a small Jewish community. If you think, look at 1860, there were about 150,000 Jews in the United States. Um, and unsurprisingly, the largest Jewish community then was in New York City. But the second largest Jewish community then was in New Orleans. So this really was a community that was like on you know both sides of the Civil War. But what's really interesting to me about this is that um, at the time of the beginning of this, when these states started to secede from the Union, um, there were a lot of national church groups that um, that divided when the country divided. So that's why it's even to this day you have like Southern Methodist, Southern Baptist. That's because uh-huh. those national organizations, they had some, you know, they had a convention, an annual convention, they had a referendum about slavery or secession and half the people walked out, made their own church across the street. What's really interesting though, is that the Jewish community at that time, there were national Jewish organizations. B'nai B'rith already existed. There were a couple other organizations that no longer exist today. None of them split at the time of the Civil War. Really? Yeah, wow. and the reason for that is because if you think about it, in 1860, most Americans like lived in the same place their parents had lived, they were farming the same land their parents farmed, like most people didn't really leave their town, it was not a very mobile population, except for American Jews. Because American Jews mostly had come to this country from places either in Latin America or in Central Europe where they hadn't been allowed to own land. They were mostly running businesses rather than farming. And so when you have a business, you need like a distribution network. You know, you need like a way to get like, you know, goods and services to one place to another. You need a network. And so when the country divided, unlike a lot of their neighbors, a lot of Jews in both sides of the Civil War had a little bit more empathy for the people on the other side because they knew people on the other mm-hmm. side. And that was sort of like this, there was this intimacy oh, to the experience of this community that was really fascinating and I thought really familiar to us as yeah. American Jews today. So interesting. And, and were, there, were there by and large more Jewish abolitionists, more Jewish slave owners, or more who just apathetic in between? Like what, what was the breakdown roughly? I mean, you know, I wish I could say yes. all Jews were abolitionists. Yes. Unfortunately, it really came down to where people lived. Uh-huh. Um, they And I think that a lot of this has to do with a lot of um, fears that diaspora Jews have right. in whatever place they live, where they feel that they need to 
demonstrate their enthusiasm for whoever's in charge of the place where they live. This is sort of a survival strategy for Jewish communities. Um, so yeah, I mean, you have active abolitionists and you have people who are slave owners. Um, and that's true you know, in both communities. What's interesting is you have rabbinic leadership um, and there, you have rabbis who are abolition, outspoken abolitionists and you have rabbis who are pro-slavery. And some of those people don't live where you think they would live. Um, actually, one of the most outspoken pro-slavery rabbis was a rabbi named Morris Raffal, who was in B'nai Jeshurun congregation in New York City, which is to me very funny because that today is you know, very known for being a really progressive congregation, um, and, but was a pro-slavery rabbi in New York City. And one of the most outspoken abolitionist rabbis was a man named David Einhorn, who was in Baltimore, which was technically in the north, but was a very southern sympathizing city. So a lot of these people were not where you think they'd be. And, you know, but very, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of vociferous debate. So what do the religious arguments look like on both sides? If you're pro-slavery and you're a rabbi giving a drusha, like, what are you rooting that in? And if you're anti-slavery, what are you rooting that in, by and large? Well, so... You know, the irony is that the pro-slavery arguments are very similar to what you saw in Christian communities at that time, where they're like, well, you know, it's like the people, you know, we think of the you know, Torah as this liberation document. Right. There is, however, there are some rules about slave ownership that come up, like, in, you know, after the Exodus. Yeah. So they go to those and are like, look, even the Torah says you can own slaves. I mean, it's absurd because in the Torah, it's it's more like indentured servitude. It's like a seven-year contract, and then you have to free the person if they don't refuse to go free and yell them to the wall. I mean, it's absurd. Um, but it's a lot of the same apologetics that, that their um, Christian neighbors were doing. Um, and, of course, the abolitionist arguments, I mean... Yeah, you don't have to go far to understand where those are coming from in the in the Torah tradition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, how did you choose the characters to use in the novel? Like, and, and do I understand correctly? These are these were real life people. Well, so they're the characters are based on real people. They, yeah. um, a few of them are actual historical figures. So, for example, uh, there was a man named Judah Benjamin who was the Secretary of State of the Confederacy, who was Jewish. He was one of the first uh, Jewish senators. He had been a senator from Louisiana. He was actually on the verge of being nominated for a seat on the Supreme Court. He would have been the first Jewish Supreme Court justice, but then these states seceded mm -hmm. from the Union, and he decided to throw in his lot with the Confederacy. It's a really fascinating, I mean, this guy was on the Confederate $2 bill. Wow. <clears throat> it's the most bizarre, It's there's so many bizarre things about his life. I could tell you the, the story of his escape from the Confederacy is also bonkers. Um, so he's a real person who's in the book. Um, the other people are based on their composites of, mm -hmm. other, of other figures. Um, so there's a couple of, there's the stories, the main character in the story is a, a Jewish soldier in the Union Army who is, um, his commanders find out that his family, his, he's from this like business family in New York, and he basically enlists in the army to run away from an arranged marriage. Um, and his commanders find out that he has these family ties in New Orleans, including to this person who is... Um, planning to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. And this is based on a real assassination plot. So this is an example of like how I sort of merged these people. Um, Abraham Lincoln actually had a very close Jewish friend, a man named Abraham Jonas, who was a fellow lawyer with him, who was um, in, in Northern Kentucky. And then Abraham Jonas was from Northern Kentucky, was a lawyer, then moved to Southern Illinois where he befriended Lincoln. Mm. He was instrumental in getting Lincoln the nomination to the Supreme Court. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, to the, to the Republican. He was public about his Judaism? Oh yes, yeah. absolutely. And he had, was, he had 10 sons, all his Kentucky-born sons ended up serving in the Confederate Army. Oh, wow. And his Union-born son ended up wow. serving in the Union Army. Wow. What's amazing wow. is that 
he found out from one of his Kentucky born <coughs> sons who had moved to New Orleans about a plot to assassinate Lincoln on the way wow. to the inauguration wow. in 1861. And this son of his, even though he was such a loyal Confederate that he ended up serving as an officer in the Confederate army, he overheard people in a tavern talking about this plot to assassinate Lincoln and he felt like he had to warn his father's wow. friend. So he wrote a letter to his father and then Jonas tipped off Lincoln. <laughs> so it's like, you know, so I took these sort of elements right. and I sort of turned them into yes. the end. And then there's another um, later. So that's the, the first um, part of the story is uh, my main character is sent to New Orleans to assassinate this person wow. who's, uh, you know, involved in this plot to kill Lincoln. Um, and he basically does this at a, at a Passover Seder, which is why this is uh, called All Other Nights. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, so yeah. I will tell you how that plot ends up. But then things yeah. get worse for my main character, where he's sent uh, the you know his commanders that are like, we have another uh, another thing for you to infiltrate. Yeah. It's this ring of spies in Virginia. It's this group of sisters, um, you know. And then the, he he sort of balks at this. He's like, you're really going to have me assassinate a woman? And then he then his commanders are like, oh no, don't worry. We don't want you to murder her. We want you to marry her. <laughs> um, and he infiltrates his way into yeah. this group of wow. sisters. And that's also based on there's um, a few different people I base that on. So there's a woman named um, there's this couple that I was thinking about named. Uh, there's uh, a woman named Eugenia Levy Phillips and her husband, I could not make this up, Philip Phillips. This was a couple, uh, Philip Phillips was a Jewish man who served in Congress as a representative from Alabama. Um, and he was a Northern sympathizer. He voted against the secession, didn't want to secede. His wife, Eugenia Levy Phillips, was a fire-breathing rebel who was, ended up, she was a Confederate spy. And she ended up being imprisoned by the Union Army when they took over New Orleans, where they were living at the time. So it's sort of like this bizarre, but yet they stayed married. They had nine children together. I mean, it's like, and her husband ended up bailing her out of prison. I mean, it's just like weird sort of loyalties that are playing back and forth, which I was it, you're winding together into these characters. So uh, perhaps, a, perhaps a last question for yes. you of <laughs> polarization today in the American Jewish community or global Jewish community. Can does this can this novel shed any light on that? Like, how does the, how how does this novel or or your thinking in general kind of help us to to think about that issue now? I think that what you see, what I what I what I found looking into this is that you know it's very looking back at you know looking back at this you know obviously we see this entirely in moral terms. There's an evil, a good side and an evil right. side, and that is I mean that is just true, right? I mean I've, there's no way you're not I'm not making any defense against slaveholders or anything like that. What I thought was interesting in studying this, though, was seeing how these people were able to sort of maintain these ties with each other despite mm. having this vast moral uh, divide. Uh. That was what was interesting to me. So, like, for example, when the Union Army takes over parts of Tennessee, which, by the way, the Jews were expelled from Tennessee. That's also this bizarre episode in Jewish history. It's the only time Jews were ever expelled from American mm. territory. Um, when the Union Army takes over Tennessee, um, you have these... Um, Union Jewish Union soldiers yeah. who are then welcomed into southern Jewish homes for like Shabbat and holiday yeah. meals yeah. No one else is like inviting the enemy over for dinner, right? right. right? That's not happening, wow. right? Wow. And then the same thing on the opposite side like when you have southern Jewish soldiers who are in prison in, as prisoners of war right. in Illinois and in other places in the north those local Jewish communities in those places were bringing those prisoners matzah for Passover, right, you right. know, and visiting them in the prison. It's like nobody else is like bringing care packages to the prisoners of war from the, yeah. you know, the enemy. It's sort of this bizarre thing where they're sort of able to sort of move above this. And then of course they use that to move forward after the, you know, after the, the war ends. Mm. And 
to me, this was really interesting. It was like interesting to look, you know, and I think that in this time of polarization, we have, in, it's, I mean, only gotten worse since I wrote this book. Um, it's not just polarization in terms of like, you know, stark moral divides, right. which there's usually, there's often very good reasons for stark moral divides. Yeah. Like I said, no one's defending slavery. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, the, but what's interesting yeah. to me is that, you know, we now live in this culture where there's this sort of premium on, you know, if I feel you're, you're supporting something that's right. morally important to me, right. my correct move to, in, in terms of how I should relate to you is that I shouldn't relate to you at all. Right. Right. I'm not going to engage with you at all. Right. And like, it's a moral stance to not engage with you at all. Right. What I think is really interesting is you look at these Jewish communities of the Civil War, and especially after the Civil War, and it's like, they don't, there just aren't enough of them. Like, they don't have a choice. Wow of like, they can't cancel people. It's right. like, there's this Union soldier, he needs somewhere to go for Pesach, he's mm -hmm. sitting alone in Tennessee, you're not gonna invite him to your Seder. Mm -hmm. You know, or the opposite, there's these, right. you know, you know yeah. on the other side, right? I mean, it's sort of yeah. this like, it's interesting to me how there's this possibility of, of I wouldn't say seeing past differences because it's so much more than differences, mm -hmm. but how it's, there's some possibility of maintaining a relationship and the relationship itself Right. is the moral clarity and enables a space for the moral mm -hmm. clarity. And and that's sort of like, and that's also, that's the way you change minds. Right. right? I mean, right. that's really right. the, I mean, right. and so, you know, for if you're passionate about whatever it is, you're, you know, yeah. that, that moral clarity yeah. that you have, share that moral clarity. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So that's a moral point around persuasion and relationship. Yes, and relationship it's also a point, building, yes. It's also a point about how the Jewish community can to some degree transcend like the American partisanship divides that we can be immersed in it, but also be something beyond it to some degree. Well, because you know, we know, we know these people. I mean, that was yeah, what was so interesting right. about this civil war example is how intimate this community yeah, is. Like it's yeah. so intimate. It's so like cool. these people are in each other's families. They're business partners. They're married to each other. Like they're literally yeah, married. Yeah, it's like yeah. one person is a, is a Northern sympathizer married to a, right. a Confederate spy. I mean, it's right, the most bonkers right, thing, right. but that's yeah. the way human relationships work. Yes. Yes, and yes, I think we right. do ourselves a disservice when we pretend that that's not right. how human relationships yeah, amazing. work. Amazing. Friends, check out All Other Nights and um, um, uh, significant, amazing, um, groundbreaking books by Dara Horn as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.